Welcome to another episode of How the Art World Works. I'm your co-host, Megan Flanders. And this episode contains strong language that might not be cool for sensitive audiences. Or juggalos. When Karen and I went on our bi-coastal adventure this year, she scheduled a secret guest to swing by our place and introduce themselves. I'm absolutely giddy to call this week's guest a blue-chip gallery artist and a real-ass homie. They're being honored with a retrospective at the ICALA opening September 29, 2019, called No Wrong Holes, 30 Years of Nayland Blake. Please welcome our wonderful guest, Nayland Blake. <laughs> I'm a regular guest on another podcast, so Ooh, I've gotten kind? into it. It is... One of the alumni from my program <laughs> runs mm-hmm. it. It is a fan podcast for Project Runway. <gasps> I'm in. So we talk about Project Runway a lot in mm. depth. It's a little embarrassing. Like now we manage to wring two and a half hour long episodes out of like a 44 minute <laughs> show. It's a little much. Wow, that's not hard though, actually. <laughs> you know, when you when you start going into all the arcana, yeah. it's can happen but it's called the workroom if you want to follow it up it's very fun the workroom yes that sounds good (laughs) do you do santino impressions on the workroom you know santino is like very very old old like old in the show no we're 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 like current i mean (laughs) i we talk about you know tim is a role model i think as an instructor Mm -hmm. Yes. And I believe that Project Runway is the best representation of art school on TV because every week you get an assignment and then you see how everybody does the assignment. Mm-hmm. All the assignments equally suck. Right. Unlike a cooking show, I can actually see what the designers did. Oh, yeah. So I can see if a seam is unfinished or whatever. On a cooking show, I can't taste it. So I don't know like what, you know, what the judges the are going out. on. So it's very satisfying in that way as like seeing people overcome and be creative in relationship to limitations mm-hmm. just like artist work exactly it's exact that same it, thing yeah yeah it's fascinating it's a problem solving the whole thing's about just problem solving yeah and it's fascinating in that way mm-hmm. yeah i haven't seen it for a couple of seasons but <laughs> it's i mean it it like anything else it has you know. like good season ba- and bad yeah. seasons yeah. the current season of all stars not very good but mm-hmm. anyway agreed Cool. Well, I'm glad to know you're an expert on that. <laughs> I I have opinions. I have, Karen. You've known me long enough to know that I have many opinions yes. about many things. <laughs> How do you have so much freaking time to social media? You are on there more than a teenage girl. Okay, but I'm not on. I'm not on Facebook. I'm and I haven't been on Facebook for like five years. I'm on I'm on Twitter and on Instagram and actually as of this year I'm scaling back on both of them. A couple of years ago I made a pledge to myself on Twitter that for any any time I posted a negative or snarky thing I would uh, I had to post two positive things. I like that. Because it was because ultimately I, I think it's our job to kind of amplify the stuff that we're excited about. I'm trying to cut back on Twitter these days because 
it is a way of distressing myself. It's like looking at it and looking for the thing to get upset by. I generally use it as a way to drop in on chats with friends of mine and a ca- and also as a way to find out what the news is because I don't have broadcast TV, so I don't watch like news stations or I don't, you know. You just have the Bravo app. I get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, Amazon Prime, which is its own <laughs> its own problem. But yeah, I don't. And, and at the beginning of this year, I was like, okay, it's important for me to know what's going on, but do I need to know what's going on immediately? I'm, I can't. There are very few situations where I can actually act on something in a time-appropriate way that I can change the outcome of it. So does it matter that I know about, like, the president's latest tantrum as soon as it happens or six hours later Mm -hmm. after it happens? The truth is there's no value in me knowing it right away, so why look at Twitter? Like, I I will pick up a newspaper. I'm, like, actually trying to... And I'm trying to now post on my own website and my own blog as a way of getting me out of just the sort of short bursts of everything yeah the cycle of negativity of online yeah well also i mean it's when you when you're writing something if you're contextualizing it it's that never happens in twitter very rarely exactly i mean context is pretty much out the door so it's very interesting because as as somebody who always thinks about that (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's really interesting it's like okay hmm can you build that in? Right. Probably not in that right. many characters. Ultimately, I think we need to come around to the point of I am donating my intellectual labor to this thing. Mm-hmm. And should I? They claim that they provide it to me for free. But the truth is that mm-hmm. we labor under it. And aside from the fact that it strip mines us for data. It also takes our labor and without remuneration. So yes, I'm I'm trying to dial back on social media. And actually one of the things I'm doing this year, I made a resolution at the beginning of the year that I was like, I don't like the way that I interact with my friends on social media. So, or digitally. So I'm gonna try to actually do more of that in person and so i started having monthly crafting parties so it's like come over to my house (laughs) and we will make crafts together and you embrace the c word uh, yeah (laughs) this is i mean i let me remind you of the class war like Mm -hmm. who is benefited by separating out the idea of craft from from rich white men with four white walls, uh, you know it. Not you know also also rich white women. <laughs> um, okay, fair, fair. Um, rich white people with four white walls, it's, but predominantly men. <laughs> <laughs> Concede. <laughs> and more importantly, to me, how do you how do you want to spend your time? And maybe this actually goes back into some history stuff, mm-hmm. so I can sort of talk about that. You know, Karen, I, I, you and I met in 1982 yeah. when I... Uh, Pre-Megan. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. 
<laughs> One day I will introduce you to the t-shirts that I have that are older than you, darling. Anyway, we met in, in 1982 uh, when I was sort of starting graduate school at CalArts. I was there until 84, and when I graduated, I moved up to San Francisco. And this sort of ties into, I think, the theme of the podcast, mm -hmm. which is that at the time, everybody that we knew from our class was either moving to New York because they were for serious artists and they were going to like make it where it mattered. Yeah, it was still a thing then. And uh, or they were staying in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to drive and still don't. And purposefully. I'm that's a choice. Would you like to learn? I'll teach you stick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Vito Acconci died without ever learning. So I think okay. I can go. All right. I mean, there's, but you know, I, I'm a native New Yorker. So, oh, so you don't need to. Right. That's the thing. It's like as a teenager, I could escape my parents as soon as I could get on public transportation. So the thing that drives most people to learn how to drive didn't, didn't matter for me. Oh, which is why we had to drive you everywhere. Yes, which which also led to me being an excellent navigator. Absolutely, like I had the Thomas Guide mm -hmm. down pat, and I could I would be in the passenger seat and could like flip people around, like talk about you know pre smartphones, right? Insert a Thomas Guide <laughs> is actually a map that was printed that we all used to use that was spiral bound. They had the internet. Mm -hmm. It was in everybody's car. It was a Christmas gift you got from like dad because it was practical. Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Really important for our viewers <laughs> and our listeners. You're so Cal experienced. Just to kind of, you know. Okay. Yeah. So sorry. Anyway. So I, so, um, so I had navigational skills. But um, when it came time for me to, to, to leave CalArts, staying in Los Angeles was not really practical. And I knew... New York well enough to know that my I would not be able to investigate the the vicissitudes of my work if I was in the city. Mm -hmm. In other words, the sort of the friends that I had who had moved back to New York, I saw them sort of chasing after a kind of relevance and being very frustrated mm -hmm. and and not being able to kind of tune into what they wanted their work to be about because the grind was so intense. And so I decided to move to a place that had good public transportation, was inexpensive to live at the time, and, and also was kind of a backwater in the way that people looked at the art world. People were willing to consider Los Angeles as an as an art center at that point mm -hmm. in many ways because of Cal Arts but but nobody thought of San Francisco as having a kind of you know importance in in the art world and so I knew that I could move there and fail and reinvent myself and let my work take whatever turns it needed also San Francisco at the time to much of an extent I guess now is the queer capital of the world and so a big part of my own sense of myself as a queer person was mm -hmm. like i want to be where queer culture is richest and most complex those were the reasons that made me move up there did you feel you found that community once you got up there yeah 
And and one of the things that happened was that my moving up there actually sort of coincided with a generation of people moving into the Bay Area and getting involved in the arts. We actually made a thing happen in San Francisco kind of with each other. San Francisco at that time was hopping. I mean, Los Angeles had a whole bunch of commercial galleries, but they didn't have a whole lot of artist-run spaces. Mm -hmm. San Francisco had a ton of artist-run spaces, but not that many commercial galleries. And so there was an amazing, vibrant scene there. Yeah. And so much stuff was going on in San Francisco. I mean, it was... you know, it was kind of a backwater in terms of collectors, mm-hmm. but not in terms of young artists actually doing really interesting stuff and and a lot of artist-driven right. projects. Right, because it was cheap enough and nobody was paying attention. And, um, and the point that you bring up is that there, starting in the mid-70s, there was a huge wave of artist-run nonprofits that started up in the Bay Area. My first show was at one of those and after showing there i was asked to be part of the artist advisory board for it was on that artist advisory board for years and then joined the staff and was on the staff there for i think three years before going back off back onto the board Mm -hmm. and and so I learned how to be a curator there. Um, the person who was the director of the organization, Rennie Pritikin, mm-hmm. was one of the people who had like the greatest impact on my career. Rennie just retired from his position as the director of the Contemporary Jewish Museum mm-hmm. in, in San Francisco. But Rennie is somebody whose impact on the Bay Area's art scene has yet to even begun to be calculated. I, I agree with that. He Absolutely. is he's one of these people that nobody sort of talks about in terms of their importance to mm-hmm. making things happen as as an enthusiast as a as as an organizer. You know, he was a director and and at that point not a curator. So people were thinking like, oh, well, he's like a bureaucrat or whatever. But I mean, his creative vision and sense of ethics Mm -hmm. about how you conduct yourself were some of the strongest lessons that I got there. My initial job in the Bay Area was was at a cafe. I worked at a place called Just Desserts. Uh, rest I remember in, that actually. Rest in peace. <laughs> Did they serve anything else? Uh, no, they were they were an amazing bakery and cafe pre Starbucks. But part of the thing with my job is that I worked three days a week serving dessert and as a barista, and then I convinced them to pay me for one extra day a week where I curated exhibitions for their walls. And so we actually, we, we came up with this name for the exhibition program, which was like 1467 Gallery, whatever the oh, address yeah. was, yeah. so that we could print postcards for the person who was having the show there that they were showing at blah, blah, blah gallery. So it looked way legit. It, it, was a, it was a resume builder for my friends. Mm-hmm. During the time that the show was up, they got free dessert for the month. Um, Not bad. I got a day off. 
<laughs> you know, that I could then put into being in the studio. Mm-hmm. And so it was a way of making things happen for people. Well, I think we gave yourself. Julia a show. Like, uh, like there yeah. were people that I knew from CalArts that we Julia had to do a show. Who? Julia Kidd, who is a, a peer of ours at, at CalArts. Is she still around? I haven't seen Julia in a really long time. I know she's around. Julia, we miss you. <laughs> <laughs> Your family will understand. Just reach out. <laughs> well, the other thing I think is really yeah. interesting is that there was a lot of energy there at that time. And I think, you know, the artist-run spaces were really pushing. It was part of, partly also the time when the NEA got sued and NAO and the National Association of Artists Organizations mm-hmm. was incredibly active. And so there was... a it was a pretty hopping in place. Also, it was 1984, yeah. so it was the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Yes, absolutely. And and that, and that was a huge. Yeah, and I mean the huge the, thing. the guy who hired me at at Just Desserts was was diagnosed, I think, in the in the first year that I was working there. Mm-hmm. By the end of the second year, he had died. Yeah. Um, well, everybody died then. Yeah. I mean, that was it. So there were there were no fail-safes or postponements much i mean Um, it was it uh and you know and then you had people who were survivors i mean it was mm -hmm. there was a but that sense of um you know we're deep in the in the reagan administration this is you know san francisco as a kind of enclave of artists run nonprofits. The other part of that is that some of those nonprofits were put together by people of color. So like Galeria de la Raza yeah. and like organizations that were that that what we saw coming out of the 70s was artists developing cultural capital and their own cultural voice and impact through running their own organizations and not paying attention to a market. And then the attacks on the NEA were of a piece with all of the rest of Reagan's attempts to privatize the economy and roll back public services, roll back those places where marginalized communities had gained some level of social power. That, I I come to this because we were talking about social media. I was talking about after the 2016 election, I came in the next day, I was looking at my students who were Mm shell-shocked. And I was like, okay, actually, I remember what this feels like. Because I remember living through a time when my government was, sucked. well, <laughs> not only sucked, but actively sought to mm-hmm. harm, marginalize uh, uh, the people, yeah. the people that I cared about. Yeah. And so the question is, what did we do in the midst of that? We did two things. We learned how to show up for each other and we made our own fun. And the thing about San Francisco is like, yeah, a lot was happening there. And it got to happen because nobody gave a fuck about it. Yeah, on some like level. like that yeah. people there wasn't a thing there that people thought they could make a lot of money off of. Mm-hmm. They and just so showed they, up and did it. Right. So that was up to us to make what we wanted to entertain ourselves. So a big part of change is showing the fuck up. Yes, I mean a big part of it is not waiting around for someone to hand you something. 
And so it's always more comforting to bemoan the powerful than it is to ask yourself, okay, what am I doing with my power? What can I do with the stuff that is around me right now? One of the things I always say to my students is like, do you want people to buy your work? When was the last time you bought art? Because the first people who are going to buy your work are people exactly like you, the people that it speaks to. That doesn't mean that those people are infinitely rich. So think about pricing something. What would you pay for it? If you, bought, if you wanted it and a friend of yours made it, what would you be willing to pay for it? Don't ask people to extend something to you that you're not willing to extend to somebody else. I think one of the things I learned in the Bay Area at that time was like, if I wanted writing about my queer art, then I should probably write about other queer art. Then I should probably reciprocate. Yes, I should write reviews. I should, you know, I should tell people about what's going on. My first show out of San Francisco was at the Lace Bookstore, and Nancy Barton right. gave it to me, mm-hmm. right? I remember that. And that's the thing that happened a ton in the those years. And, and so that was a thing that also was happening a lot at the time, is that the people, the first people who were supporting my work were people that I'd been in school with, because mm-hmm. they were the ones who knew what I did. Absolutely. They um, supported you. Yeah, and vice versa. That, I think, is a huge... When we're talking about um, how the art world works, Mm -hmm. it's like it's so easy to mystify it and to mystify the power relationships within it. But the truth is that we all have some capacity to make an opportunity for the work that we care about. It may be a really diminished capacity. It may be just like taking one friend to go see the work of another friend. It may be just writing an email to someone whose piece that you saw that you that you thought was important or moved you. But take that step. It's hugely important. Plus, kindness is free. Well, that as well. And I, I also found, for me, working at Langton was hugely helpful for my career as a gallery artist. In part because... When I was talking to other curators, I could tell them about other work. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't have to just feel like if they talked to me, they were just going to get, here's my pitch about what I do. I could tell them about other artists in the Bay Area and people that they should look at. Being that advocate more for, for the yeah. people you knew and the art you like supporting. Yeah. yeah. And maybe I should say like, okay, so the my the first show that I did in the Bay Area was at um, was at New Langton Arts. The second show was at a commercial gallery called Media. Media was a gallery started by a woman named Patricia Davidson, who had been in a kind of horrific car accident, um, where she was in a body cast for almost a year. And she took the money that she got from a settlement, and she had decided that she wanted to open a gallery and um, artist bookstore. And so she she opened it up south of Market. I was her roommate, and there were th- four of us living in this apartment on Russian Hill, and she gave me my first show there. This next week, I'm in a show at Matthew Marks that's myself, 
and Vince Fecto and Lutz Bacher. Vince organized it. Lutz, I met at media. I met her. I, I met her through Patty. Um, so the people that I saw in the Bay Area at that time, I'm still seeing around. And and Patty, you know, I mean, she ran media for three years, I think, four years. Showed a ton of people from the Bay Area, people that went on to do really interesting stuff. And then, like, wrapped up the business, you know, and, and closed it out. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Jelly Arts. It's spelled G-E-L-L-I. Jelly Arts makes an extensive line of tools for artists working in all kinds of paper and can be found in major retailers nationwide. Hey, printmakers, you don't have to make any more trays of Jello to achieve those breathtaking layered looks. Jelly's gel printing plates look and feel like gelatin, but they're durable, reusable, and they store at room temperature. Jelly has you covered with a range of sizes, and they clean up with a simple swipe of a baby wipe. No hazardous chemicals or solvents are necessary. It's an American-made and owned company, and it's also run by artists. So you can feel great about spending money with them, and you can usually use the Sunday newspaper coupon on their products. Check out jellyarts.com and snoop on their awesome line of products today. So it's, it's, it's the shows with her that got me shows with other galleries there and mm-hmm. got me attention from museum curators and got me that where a lot of things happened out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also interesting because I think that generosity usually comes back. Mm-hmm. And so when artists re- don't tell other artists about things or opportunities or whatever, it's just not, it doesn't really make sense. It also mm-hmm. reeks of insecurity. Well, but I think that is a huge asset to artists mm-hmm. because it's like, it ends up being who you know, right? And, and, and how you treat those people. Yeah. Well, I also believe that your reality is completely shaped by your imagination. So if you imagine that the world is a zero sum game and you have to be like completely paranoid in relationship Mm -hmm. to everybody else around you and there's only one chance and you always have to be on the lookout for it, then that is the world that you will live in. Absolutely. And, um, and that is the experience that you'll have of it. And I just, I, it's never made sense to me. It's, I can't, um, it feels too unhealthy. People can say that this it's a kind of naivete, but I would rather... I'd rather exercise my paranoia by getting involved <laughs> with people who romantically hatch plots to torture me than through than through musings about what's going on in the in the art in some spectral art world that I can't control anyway. This is why I love this is why I love kinky people in the BDS. And like the- like I can I can beat me and whip me, but let me know about it. Jeez. Well, and 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 <laughs> in just the way that I want, or and that I or that both yeah, agreed on. it's like yeah, you, I can yeah. you know you can plot against me, in right, in you know in the in the most delicious ways. Yeah consensually yeah so at one point you 
we're represented by a gallery, and then you started doing a lot of different shows around the world. Like yes. a big gallery? Um, I, you know, I've been, uh, I've been represented by very big galleries. I've been represented by small galleries. It's, it's been a whole range. So, um, but I, I guess maybe the way to sort of talk about that is like coming out of, um, because of working at Langton and because of um, what was happening, there was a kind of uh, transnational queer um, uh, network of um, curators and artists that in part was coming out of um, organizing around the AIDS crisis. So um, the the artists in Grand Fury, mm-hmm. um, the artists in General Idea, um, Bill Olander, who is the curator, the really important curator at the New Museum. Some of this was all happening through NAO, the National right. Association of Artist Organizations. So um, I met um, uh, Julie Alt, mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, um, Douglas, um, from, uh, group material Mm -hmm. at a NAO conference in Buffalo, New York. And through that became friends with Julie and Felix. We traded uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres. We traded work. Um, people were organizing shows at different places and it was sort of the first time that like explicitly um, gay male work was being shown at these various venues. Mm-hmm. And so that set up a kind of loop where there was all this activity and energy. And then the commercial art world also began to notice that. Yeah. So the all of the making our own fun in San Francisco began to catch the attention of like museum curators there and other and other people and then mm-hmm. that led to me um having these opportunities to be in these all these shows in different places so it was really like 89 90 91 were like the busiest years where a lot of stuff was going on. I was represented by Richard Kuhlenschmidt Gallery in Los Angeles, Mincher Wilcox Gallery in San Francisco. I did a show at Petersburg Gallery, which was a a very important but um, but short-lived gallery um, uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. And so there a ton of stuff was happening sort of all around then and then and then everything really kind of fell off. Um, and there was really a period where um, sort of not a lot was happening. Did any of those gallerists rip you off? Like keep your work or something? Um, I have, um, I had a gallery close and owe me money. Um, one of the partners in the gallery worked very hard to sort of pay back 
um, what they could. I was lucky enough in another instance to get a phone call um, uh, from someone who worked at a gallery going, hi, um, I'm going to dictate a fax to you and you need to send it back to me now. And they dictated a fax that was like, I'm severing my relationship with the, with the gallery. I am rescinding my, um, any, any works that um, are currently on consignment to the gallery need to be returned to me. Um, they, they, you no longer represent me. And this was, this was, a, you know, if they had chosen not to do that, then all of the work that this gallery had would have been part of their assets like basically they were about to they were about to declare bankruptcy um and the employee at the gallery who was aghast that this was going to happen mm -hmm. um gave me the wording to allow me to get my stuff out so that it would not be part of the assets of the gallery because that the, the IRS other creditors would take them well uh, that any i would be a creditor like any yeah. other creditor yeah. and i would be I, my ability to recover any of that stuff would be totally contingent on my ability to hire lawyers and, and go in and right. do that. So, um, so yeah, I've had, I've had both situations, you know, where things sort of folded and, and, uh, and, um, you know, and, and I was owed money. I've had situations where, um, you know, uh, galleries were, um, you know, super generous and supportive. Um, I, I think the thing that's really important, what I learned, um, there was a point where I, for a very short period of time, worked with a really prominent New York gallery. And, uh, it was a really bad fit. I, um, was at a place where I confused attention with a genuine interest in the work and what I did and who I was and what I thought. Um, and then very quickly learned that that's not the case. Um, and, uh, and, and got myself out of that situation um, with the help of um, with the help of some friends. Um, and from that I learned that um, and, and this was a place where in a way, if you you know I, I, I grew up here in New York and I saw like the New York art world of the 70s and I and mm -hmm. and uh, and for me, some of that was like magical and the idea that I would be um, that my work would be in this context in part was kind of like, this has been my goal for as long as I've wanted to be an artist. And I learned that actually that, um, that, that, that particular situation was really bad for me. And so the, the lesson out of that was, um, you know, galleries are shops. The relationship is a commercial one, but it it is a relationship. 
They're not, they're not a place where you have to be friends. Like you do not have to be friends with everyone that you do business with, but you do have to feel okay about doing business with them. And if you are having a bad feeling about doing business with them, it probably is not the right thing. Mm-hmm. You should probably, it's, it's better in the long run. And that by you, I mean me. It's better for me to, um, to walk away from that than it is to stay in a situation. I mean, it's like any, it's like any other romantic relationship. Absolutely. Right? In that sense. Mm-hmm. Whip me and beat me consensually. Exactly. Um, and so I know what this episode's called. <laughs> um, so, so the other thing I would say about that, because now you know, I did. I, it's like I named her opt. I'm going to be having this show at Matthews. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I kind of explain to people about that relationship is that when I met Matthew. He didn't have a gallery. He, he was had, just some dude named Matthew. He he had worked as an assistant at a at at a um, at Anthony DeFay Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, he was and is somebody who is a kind of starry eyed fan of artists. Like he was was you know a a young guy who. Um, talked his parents into giving him enough money so that he could go to Louise Bourgeois and buy a print because he really wanted to have like a Louise Bourgeois print. It's so romantic. It, Yeah. And so this is somebody who was like, I met them and they were like, you know, I'm thinking about starting a gallery. I don't, you know, if, um, and, um, and when he opened up, it was on um, 79th Street at at um Madison Avenue which was like nowhere near where any powerful <laughs> gallery was at the time. Yeah. It was a building that had had galleries in it that were actually kind of important galleries but hadn't no one had thought about them as a viable location. So it was like the move to San Francisco, it was Oh, this is on the fringe. Mm-hmm. This is like this a, is where we can afford to be to do our cool yeah. thing. Yeah, and so this is like a here. weird thing that's on the side. And this yeah. is a guy who's my age, who's kind of trying to do this thing. And like, why not? Like, and so it has grown into the thing that it is. You know, through Matthew's work and the way that he manages all of that. But in terms of my relationship with him, it has been a thing that it has it has a- achieved the stature that it is uh, sort of after the fact for me mm-hmm. you know it's like first your business homies and then you're like hanging out homies. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i can appreciate that so, Matthew's a really nice guy too like a lot of gallerists you have to be oh no beyond point and tiptoes and eggshells mm-hmm. and he's of human he's yeah. really easy to work with he picks up the phone mm-hmm. that's amazing right there yeah i like my I, I think that i mean like anybody who has to deal with a lot of people mm-hmm. he can get he can get kind of overwhelmed mm-hmm. and it's like and it can be a bit much and then people take that as like being standoffish and whatever i've worked in enough gallery spaces to know that people project 
everything onto you. I did the I I did the portfolio, um, or I did the the review and sort of artist advising thing for the drawing center, um, for a while, and and that was the thing where artists can sign up and make an appointment and talk to um, curators on staff about their work and just kind of bring things in. And there's not any real goal above and beyond just kind of like informing the curators. But, you know, for folks who are coming in and showing their work, it's like they can get so intensely bound up in Mm -hmm. like this is the make or break thing or you know, what's going to happen? This is it. Like this has to be perfect. Yeah. And, and that, um, and that projection of a th- like their projection of authority onto me, you know, is something that is that I know that like, you know, gallery owners get that 10 times over and some of them eat it up. Some of them are there for the mystique of it. Um, others, it's not necessarily fun for them to have people like look at them, you know, in that way. And so, you know, I can, I can get if somebody's like protective of their time or step, you know, steps back or, I don't know. So what is ICP? Are you a secret juggalo? I am not particularly myself down with the clown but if people are but i'm i have no beef with the with dark carnival folks they can you know i know they're like peace loving fun loving i googled it no lie i was in some deep shit i'm like man this is gonna get weird i can't wait till he comes over the (laughs) international center of photography has fought a long seo battle with the insane clown posse over <laughs> over who gets first listing um, for those. You notice that we are um, ICP.org. Mm-hmm. Not They're definitely I- organized, though, too. They are, but they <laughs> own ICP.com. Uh, they, we are ICP.org. <laughs> it so is, when you type it in wrong and this is what comes up, try again. Yeah, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> or don't. I mean, learn yeah. some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fago life. Yeah. Um, you know, they're cool. Um, I was wondering how you were going to get the face paint on with the massive beard. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I can neither be a sister of perpetual indulgence or a juggalo with it, with the amount of facial hair that I have. Um, Karen remembers me clean shaven. Yep. One of, one of the, one of the and rare s- periods of my life. And so young. <laughs> <laughs> very good friends then i remember that i mean it was 19 i mean i still have good friends now but but i remember you know i show up it's 1982 and i had a i i had like a relatively short haircut except one long tail yes and um and i remember (laughs) like i was at cal arts for like two weeks or something and it was probably larry Somebody, it was probably Larry Johnson or somebody um, just sort of, it was an evening, weekend, and somebody just just came up to me and was like, you know, we're going to take care of this. (laughs) Just like, just very quickly kind of like snipped it off. Saved me from myself. (laughs) We love you. 
We love you. Yeah, friends don't let friends walk around like that. With, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. So then you were quite, yeah, then you just still had a short haircut. Yes. And you were completely clean shaped. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. There was, I had a. Actually, you were for a while. When did you start growing? Um, I, I started growing the beard back out in the late eighties. Okay. Sort of, um, in, as part of the rise of bear, like, uh, one of the hotspots of the development of bear culture and the bear sort of identity was in the Bay area. Um, uh, and it, and, and. Bears, burly, hairy, um, gay men, in some ways, in the Bay Area at least, were the guys who were kind of part of the leather scene, but too messy, Mm -hmm. too schlubby. Um, (laughs) Not very Tom of Finland, more like Tom of over there, Lind. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Um, uh, Tom of Woodland. Um, (laughs) Uh, and you know, we, um, and I, I poked around the San Francisco leather scene to, to some extent, but, um, at that point, um, in the mid eighties, it, um, was very much, uh, built around like bodybuilder guys and guys who had had experience in the military. It was, it, it was this very, um it was the village people it was it it was patriarchy it it was a very um patriarchal scene that (coughs) had um some um some really um unwell and quite verbal misogyny um it had um so it had a fair amount of racism in it. Um, and so I was, it, it didn't work for me. It was not like all of the activity was stuff that I found hot, but the, but all of the affect was a real problem for mm-hmm. me. Um, so um, when the bear thing started up and seemed sort of like at that point more open-ended and um, at, you know, it was exciting to me because like the San Francisco art scene, the bear thing was an emergent identity and, um, and kind of zone of desire that was, undefined and was becoming defined the people who participated in it it was in some ways kind of unnamed and that actually kind of throws me back it's like the the types of art scenes and the types of art activity that are the most thrilling to me are those places where things are not quite defined and people are building definitions with each other yeah and yeah and i mean that's i don't know if this is the case for you karen but that was my experience of punk in the 70s right that it was this thing that before it became a category of person in high school Mm -hmm. it was like this like very nebulous like these things that you sort of thought were part of that spirit and sort of went together but but it wasn't like it didn't have a uniform yet it didn't have like a particular 
voice yet, but it was like this thing that people could sort of engage in and, and also, make up. And also, at that time period, there was no internet still. Right. So it's not like things happen super fast. Yeah. I mean, there's this or, or sort of organic building of something, and you could participate in something for a period of time yeah. and help shape it. Yeah. Which I think is kind of different now. You know, as soon as something's out there, there's another 50 people trying to do the same thing that you're doing or right. whatever. But right. that was a particularly interesting time, I think, because there was this kind of gradual awareness of everything because things were getting more global. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, so it was, it was kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's an... I, I, I don't believe that just because our technology allows us to... to um, act or observe with greater speed i don't believe that our thought happens any faster or that our our decision making process happens any faster right. or that any of that stuff has mm -hmm. happens any faster just we just have stimulus that makes us think maybe it should right and yeah. so that yeah, like I, if I know about it two minutes after it happens, something is supposed to be different than if I know it like the earliest six hours later. Yeah. Right? Or but like, it's, it's or, like what? No. Or three weeks or yeah. a year or, yeah. you know, that that it's and um, and the other thing I think that's important um, just from an artistic and thought point of view is that um there's a lot, a lot of creativity is misremembering, is, is trying to kind of recreate a thing that you remember, but not really being able to, because you don't quite have access to it. So you make this thing. Like when you don't remember the lyrics, right? Yeah. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and that you, and then you make up like your own, you make up your own song, but, but in a world where you can go, um, you know, uh, purple. That's not right. I'm the world it. where you can go like purple haze lyrics yeah. and answer that question immediately. You don't ever have that creative slippage, mm -hmm. and so the the value. I mean, one of the things that happened with punk is that it was like it was a meme that played out over like the course of a decade and happened because a person in a town got a record that his cousin sent him or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. that like three other people in the town were like played over and over again. And they were like, what is this like blurry photo on here? How are these people dressed? Like, maybe it's like this. Right. And, and that like allowed for a kind of cultural digestion and elaboration that for me is, is what I associate with creativity. Yeah. So it seems like we're missing that breathing room again. Yeah. 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 And I think it has it it bears itself out in um, things like real estate development, right? Mm -hmm. The story in New, the story in New York was um, that that commerce, you know, the the sort of post-war boom in in um, the media industries of the time, publishing, um, uh, advertising, um, broadcasting um, ended up driving out light manufacturing um, and that's what led to 
um, areas like Soho and Tribeca being deserted husks of buildings that nobody wanted, that nobody mm-hmm. had any interest in, that then artists could move into and um because and and because nobody was paying any attention to it or wanted it um that was a fallow period for those for those buildings that was you know like a decade now the second a building is abandoned it is seen as recuperable right so that there is no flippable. Inter- yeah, there is no interim time no. Yeah. where um, where nobody wants it, so people can make something interesting out of it. Instead, it is completely rationalized into the cycle of development, mm-hmm. so that at every point of its life of its lifespan, it can be made to generate profit. So no rest for the building. Yeah, you know exactly. It's just like. Yeah, that intensity. Yeah. Well, I think it also uh, has a huge impact on the way artists see careers now. Mm-hmm. Because there's such an expectation that things are going to happen immediately. And even if you tell people that, mm-hmm. there's still that thing in your head, it's going to be me. Mm-hmm. Right? And so... And so that immediacy where people don't even get time to develop their work. Mm-hmm. I mean, if curators are visiting your studio in grad school... Mm-hmm. And that's where your work ends up. It stays kind of grad school-like if that's what you get pushed into. But yeah. there's so many artists that have not had a chance to really develop. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of bottom out, which I think is kind of sad. Right. Well, you, know? you end up... Um, I mean, at that point, somebody else is telling a story with the thing that you make. And that's fine. Um, but the goal is for many different people to be able to tell many stories with all of the things that you made over the span of your life. Right. And if, and if you become that story um, too quickly, it becomes very hard for you to not believe that that's the only story that you have. Right. So, um, you know, the, the other way that I sort of talk about this is that um, it's really easy to see in New York. Um, New Yorkers and people in the art world have to process a lot of information quickly. They see a lot of images. They say, you know, we now see like more images in a day than people saw in their entire lifespan in previous centuries, right? right. So. Um, so we get really good at filing. We get really good at looking at something going like, okay, well, that's this, that's, this is identity Mm -hmm. politics. This is this, this is this, this is women's work. This is that, that's that, that's that. So that we can move through all of this massive material. When something disrupts that filing system, we get pissed Mm -hmm. and we blame the artist. It's like, I don't know what this is. Where am I supposed to file it? The thing that I tell my students is that it is not your job to make other people's filing easier. Absolutely. Your job is to manifest your presence in the work, in the mm-hmm. world. And that is it. And um, and there's something, uh, my personal feeling is like, if you look at something of mine and you don't know where to file it, that means that you have to look at it again. 
And you have to think about it. Yeah. You can't just like dismiss it. You actually have to engage it. And so I, you know, I think that it's really important for artists when you're looking at the work of other artists, look at their career. Like, look at what they made before the thing you're looking mm-hmm. at. Look at what they made after it. Think about the year that the thing was made. Right. You know, art history is rarely written to give you a sense of what artists' lives are like. Absolutely. So ask what the life was like. Yeah. Read biography. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Um, because... Then you get a sense of, then you get information that you can use that's like, okay, I'm in a situation similar to this. What am I going to do with the work? Mm-hmm. Where am I going to look for, th- you know, where am I going to look for things? Right. Um, you know, the tendency is to give you the highlights. And the highlights don't help you out in the studio. No. Particularly when they're not, when they're framed like, this is the most pertinent uh, thing you know this is the most the thing that speaks exactly to this issue mm-hmm. at this moment it's like well you can't do anything with that studio you can't do anything with that in the studio like running around trying to figure out like what's the most important issue of my day and how am i going to oh, speak yeah. to it perfectly because by the time you get to it it's already passed exactly and so and the other two billion artists have done it as well yes <laughs> well that is that is the that is of course the joke about new york is that if you're <laughs> In New York, if you're one in a million, there's seven more of you. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's a very old joke, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we remember. But it's a very New York joke. We remember when it used to be four. Yes, and, now it's like, and now it's like, oh my God, it's 18 now. You know? It's like, oh my God, there's, that means there's 18 Nalen Blakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, that's a little bit scary. Super team. Party. Super team. <laughs> I can just see it. Are you kidding me? We'll that's, have to start a that's, new. It'll have to be Blakeness. That's who I'm looking to date. Are you? That's a... be me, but also me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Can you think of any? So you've been an artist and have been showing for a long time, and yes. the, and things have changed drastically. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about if you have any kind of insights into the way things have changed and if you have any idea about what's going on now. Um, well, you know, one of the things that's exciting about curating as well as making work is that it allows me to sort of investigate things that are going on that I'm not necessarily um, following in my own work. Right. So um, the thing, like... Um, in the past decade, a couple of things happened. One, I sort of stopped. I spent a couple of years basically just operating in the kink and BDSM communities. Mm -hmm. And that was in part because those are communities where people are making culture together. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think of like a kink scene, it is a performance where the performers and the audience are coextensive. 
So there's something powerful to me about cultural situations where everybody who is going to be the receiver of the culture also has to produce. Right. So it's like nobody eats without cooking. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that seems much healthier to me in the kink scene than in, um, than in the commercial art world. Right. The other thing that, that has sort of happened during that time is I've become aware of uh, like the furry fandom and things like DeviantArt. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a place where um, the, the commercial art world luckily has a huge blind spot mm-hmm. because this is a world where people are making a living as artists making work in um as at making work mostly through commission mm-hmm. um and and doing that without intermediary um brokers yeah an agent yeah third right. fourth yeah. and fifth party right there is not there's not an agent it's yeah. like it's like I message I want, you and say, "Hey, dude, I like the way you draw the whatever I'm into." Yeah, I want I want a drawing of my character. Yeah, this is like, and then and, and I want her hugging Selena Gomez. Right, and <laughs> full body, full color. Yeah, and then and and then the artist might write back. It's like, you know, if you if you read my terms of service, I won't draw like actual celebrities. Mm-hmm. So sorry, you know that won't work out. But there's like a negotiation. Yeah. Um and and. And people make money doing this. And that is ignored mm-hmm. because it doesn't generate cultural capital for wealthy people. Yes. Quickly enough. They could find out a way to monetize it, there, but it wouldn't be quick enough for them to be happy there, about there it. There will be, but yeah. but yeah. but that's but but you know, the in the same way that um, like if you had a medieval tavern sign, it would be, it would be really valuable. Right. Right. right? Yep. And, but so I'm really, and I'm, and I'm also interested that in the furry fandom, it is people, um, creating their fantasy bodies, people creating their own, like, um, adventures and the utopian worlds that they want to live in. Um, and not drawing hands if you're not good at hands. Draw the thing you like drawing. <laughs> <laughs> All the princesses, hands behind their backs. You know, as a, as uh, as someone who teaches a lot of art, um, be grateful for the challenge of drawing hands. It's a thing that you can never solve, but it's a problem that you can always return to. It's like... I draw every day. I have to remind myself to draw hands because they are hard. Mm-hmm. Similarly with feet, you know, I'm... Pre- and God forbid you're into foot furry stuff. It, well... That's really hard to you draw. Know, God forbid that you're into into horses. Oh. Like having to draw a lot of horses. They that's bad so news. so many muscles. Yes. <laughs> that's true. And they're always glistening in the sun. You never yeah. see a dull horse. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that to me is 
when I when I started off saying like realize like your place of power, mm-hmm. right? Um, instead of uh, instead of complaining about you know the Banksy their thing is mm-hmm. shredded at some million dollar auction, it's like all right, well, I could put energy into being outraged about that or coming up with some snarky comment about it. But like, suppose I spend $30 and give and hire, you know, an artist to do something for me and mm-hmm. like there and, and, you know, help them like pay their rent because yeah. they put a call out on like Twitter. I mean, that's one of the things that like I do on Twitter is like <laughs> follow a lot of furry artists and like people are like, I'm having problems with the rent and does anybody need a commission? Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. stuff yeah. like that. That's like direct support. I think also there's um, artists. I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting is that artists are beginning to own the means of their own production. Yeah. And I think that's a huge shift and it's got a lot of people really scared Mm-hmm. And it's also why people hate uh, the fact that we actually train artists in, in how to be right. to and, and be a professional in the art world. Yeah. Whatever that world is. And so that's really fascinating because the the in Los Angeles, I don't know if you know this, but when I started a nonprofit, there were only three. Now there's over 100 artists run spaces in mm-hmm. LA. And so artists are starting to get knowledgeable enough about doing their own thing. And so at some point... You know, artists working with artists as partners has become really interesting as opposed to dealer yeah. that works with artists. And, and it's completely, there's yeah. there's no, I mean, the hierarchy is just huge. So when you're, when you're operating artist to artist, there's a completely different feel to it. Yeah. And there's so much more of that stuff going on. And there's not enough galleries for an artist, for artists. I mean, there's like, what's it, 1% of the artists will get a gallery space? Right. Well, also... So, I, I remember, I, I mean, a, a, again, talking about, like, the art world of the 70s, I remember a time when if you, if you were an artist and you sold out a show, you were suspect. Yes. You were a sellout. Like, right. there must be something wrong with you right. if, 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 if so many people wanted to buy these things. Or... Like, that was the tone... In the time, it was not like a good thing to be selling a lot of work. And or and or I mean, the other option would, I guess, be uh, the someone would assume that it was fake. In other words, that right. it was a sold out show. There were people buying out shows mm-hmm. and doing clandestine things like that back wait, then wait, as wait, well. Wait, what do you mean selling and buying? Well, in out other the words, show? if someone like if you had a show, and then the your show would sell out. But yeah. it wouldn't really sell out. They would just say it's They'd sold just put out. red dots on or the they would, things you know, on the wall yeah. so that you get excited and everyone yeah. would think you were more popular. So there's a lot of weird things like that that were going on at the time, too. It You know, imagine the things that could happen if you had mm-hmm. an enormously unregulated market in mm-hmm. expensive commodities. <laughs> Fire festival. <laughs> yeah, or... Um, massive money laundering or, you know, or, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the thing that's happening, um, with, you know, this is the model for things like Airbnb and things like this. It's like places Mm -hmm. to stow capital, um, that make, that are hard to track. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, there, there's, um, above and beyond, 
um, whether or not there are enough gallery slots. It's also what kind of a life do you want to have? Yes. Like, like what kind of interactions do you want to have? Um, it, I, you know, I, I always ask, like, I, when I'm talking to people and they're like, well, I really want to have a gallery. I'm like, okay, well, why do you want to have a gallery? And they're like, well, because I want to, because I want to sell work. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, well, so why do you want to sell work? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, uh, well, yeah, so I, I so I can have money to to make more work. It's like, okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Is there any other way for you to get money to make more work? If that's what the ultimate goal is, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, there are certain things that you can do in a commercial gallery that you can't do in other places, mm-hmm. but be clear that that's what you're going there to do. Um, and don't think that it's an achievement in and of itself. Right. Um, you know, any art dealer who is smart knows what they can sell and what they can't sell. And that's, that's like how their business runs. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not a, some mystif- mystical like dislike of you when they are like, I can't sell it. That's mm-hmm. like, okay. Yeah. Don't like, like the myth that dealers could sell anything. Oh, yeah. At certain points, perhaps in, you know, uh, certain dealers can sell anything well in the 90s that was pretty i mean that would probably be the decade that i would choose for for, you could get away yeah not everybody not everybody but and 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 you also have to ask like okay of those people that you heard who were doing those sales what does anybody have to say about them like like how many people are like i really want to be around them Oh, right. I mean, you and I both remember when Larry Gagosian was like a guy in weird yellow leather suits in, you know, on off of Melrose, (laughs) like who basically would show artists who showed at Metro Pictures and then the next month get sued by them. You know, yeah. So, because yeah. he had some the sort of like, history, yeah, <laughs> and, and it happens over and over again. And so. that's and and so it's like, all right, well, that's what that business is like, right? It's you know, yeah, it's clearly works for him, but it's not how I want to spend my time. No. So that's the other part of it. It's like, yeah, if you're making situations happen for the people around you then you also get to have that life where yes. people are like glad to see you coming and yes. bring you along on their projects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Reciprocity is cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so I think that's, and the, and the, the thing that you will hear, um, the way that hegemonies remain in power is by convincing you that anything that they don't control is meaningless or pointless or irrelevant or redundant or, you know, that, that that's the way 
you know, the Roman Empire. Like, mm-hmm. ugh, goths? <laughs> really? You tell you you want to hang out with goths? They're like they're like useless. Come on, this this is goths have the best drugs. We have we have the <laughs> we have the entire world right here in Rome. Absolutely. What else do you need to do? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what you're going to be met with. And um, and you have to remember that that is the thing that somebody tells you when their hand, their other hand is on the way to swiping your stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't need that. What? It's, right. This is like yeah. nothing. These like little get rinky-dink galleries here. Like, forget it. It's mm-hmm. like nothing. Look, yeah. I'll do you a favor and take it off your hands. Right. Yeah. I've yeah. <laughs> That's such an old one. <laughs> it's almost nostalgic to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you so I know that you you know, you teach and you work with young artists all the time. Is there anything in particular that you think is particularly important for artists now to be thinking about or I think it's really important to think about the physical world. Um we're at a moment where we're being offered um, the the bargain of infinite virtual space and like completely shitty, destroyed actual space. Right. That's that's what our that's what our current monopolistic oligarchs are offering us. They're like infinite, infinite digital storage, mm-hmm. um, no water. Yeah. And, and so the thing that's amazing about art is its ability to bring us back to direct experience. And direct experience that doesn't necessarily have a goal. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the most powerful things I was I um, one of the graduates of of my program is somebody who has been working uh, with uh, DeepMind at Google. And so they have started a kind of like art, like in kind of engagement Mm -hmm. thing there. And they were bringing people in to have conversations about it and talking about it. And um, and in talking to the people who were like engineers in there, I was like, okay, the thing that's valuable about art is um, blurriness, indecisiveness. The fact that two of us can look at something at the same time and have different stories about it. Um, You know, the way that most computer code is written is for it to have only one story. Right. So, um, so the, the thing that is important about art is that it creates a space of multiple possibilities. Like math only has one right answer, but art has a whole bunch of right answers. Well, yes. I mean that, that, um, and, or at least the answers in art do not cancel each other out. Right. I I dig that. That, that, that we think of great, art objects not because you know why is the mona lisa a great painting because it was stolen (laughs) (laughs) well in part because there's 
so many so many different people have been able to make use of it mm-hmm. as a kind of mental furniture as a scaffolding for their own thought that's where its power comes from not because it's such a fantastic depiction of this one broad brown-haired young woman in you know in Italy and so that's you know that's where art's power comes from is from all of the many ways that so many of us can make use of it mm-hmm. in different directions. And so, you know, for artists, the thing that we have to keep in mind is how do we create experiences for each other that are that our experiences where we get to sit with each other and that things kind of open out and that we get to um, experience the productive ambivalence that is there in the art situation. Mm -hmm. Um, It means being willing to slow down, to not have a, to not have the right answer immediately. Mm -hmm. It also means like knowing, thinking about where that activity is taking place because the thing to remember about online space, this infinite online space that we're being offered, is that it's owned. Yes. It is not public space. No. It is it it is privatized space. And um and so we need to think about like are there ways that art objects can reinvigorate um public unowned interaction. Right. You know, are there places where we can come together um, in spaces that are that are not already claimed um, territories? So is this one of the reasons why you started the monthly craft events? Yeah. So it kind of makes sense, right? It was. Yeah, it was like, OK, a. Um, it's so it's so great to like just be sitting around with a room full of your friends um and and uh you don't have to be like focused on any one thing like a movie or a tv show or something um it's a great way to party with introverts Mm -hmm. because people don't have to maintain a conversation (laughs) like you can make also for me it was a way of dealing with a lot of my clutter Mm. so i have like tons of collect like like the theme for last month's craft party um, for years, I collected um, trucker caps like mesh right. baseball caps. And finally I like looked at my collection. I was like, you know, 75% of these I don't wear, not interested in them. So <coughs> the theme for the last, last month's craft thing was um, Queens of the road. Mm-hmm. People came over and, um, and, basically transformed my caps um into their crown got it so it was like build your crown (laughs) and then they took the crown with them it was no longer in my house Aha, uh-huh. this and, is how you avoid cleaning your house, right? Well, this is this is how, <laughs> how I clean, clean my yeah. house. Yeah, that's what I Yeah, <laughs> but it's but it also is like it was so great to just like have an afternoon with people that yeah. also the people 
friends of mine who didn't necessarily hang out with each other. Yes. And that's the other part of it. That's it's like, the best. how can I bring? Yeah. Make those connections. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's again, it's it's sort of going back to that situation in San Francisco where it was like, how Absolutely. can I be a yeah. resource for the people that mm-hmm. I know? Um, yeah. How can I make an experience for them that is, um, you know, not the stand the standard thing over and over again? I started doing clay parties in my backyard. Oh, yeah. Awesome. A whole bunch of different people because I I started a ceramics program at Kellerts. Awesome. Which is really odd. Um, and so that, but it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You get all these people and they, they're kind of like-minded, but they don't all know each other mm-hmm. and they, and they can do whatever they want because it's such a versatile material. It's crazy. And mm-hmm. people just have the best time. Yeah. You know, and I noticed that students who take my classes who were having a really hard time making work, mm-hmm. that it opens up their brain when they use their hands finally, because we're so computer driven and all any of our students do is sit in front of computers. Yeah. So it's, you know, I mean, I have like a hundred people that want to take that class and it's, but it's so amazing what it does. And it's so interesting how other people actually don't realize the quality of that. Right. And that it's actually really useful for artists to make things. Right. And And it doesn't have to be a masterpiece, but it's the whole process that it, you know, your hands open your brain. You start thinking differently. Yeah. And it, and, and. And that time isn't owned by somebody else, right? It's owned and by and you. isn't rationalized in yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. And I and and so that's why this stuff gets kind of like discounted by yeah, you know, by other situations. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting because starting that program there was quite quite interesting to sort of like start something that had always been verboten. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like no, 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 we don't do that here. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And so it's been really interesting. You're forbidden from using the word interesting. That was three in one sentence. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it's really cool, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> Better. Thank you. <laughs> I can't help it. Everything's interesting. <laughs> so what else can I tell you guys? Well, do you have any other thoughts that you think are important that you'd like Relevant to share with the stories, world? Any of it? Um... I think that if there's one thing, I, well, you know, I'm 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 working uh, towards a retrospective that's going to open at the ICALA in in uh, September 29th cool. of this year, 2019. Coming up on it, yep, hard and fast. Um, so it's I've been thinking about. Um, what do like i've been looking over a lot of stuff i've mm-hmm. been looking over a lot of old notebooks i've been looking over be a lot of things it is um it's kind of uh it it is one of those things that has put me back in touch with these like very material mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. you know i have some notebooks from cal arts um i have some like projects from that stuff when it, uh you know there's I was reminded of like this crazy project that I did where I don't know if you ever saw this, but do you remember a day when I was selling paintings outside of the dining hall? Yes. And each one of them, they had like this whole pyramid scheme 
thing agreement that went yeah. on with them that they were going to be shown every year and double in value every year. <laughs> yes. And da, 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 da. where are they now? Romantic show. Um, <laughs> one of them. Well, it ga- it was gave me the excuse to make like fifty different paintings. I know, right at Kellers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's what and everybody kept saying this this is the no painters at Callers. So yeah yes. there are yeah. all the time you know <laughs> yeah um i know none of them are in la packing spill <laughs> yeah um uh well one of them is uh uh well angel had angel bought one they were all selling it was like five bucks oh, and it, it and it was really it was the initial price for them and i and it was like i couldn't you know, I was like obviously like broke and trying and to. And this is in the early '80s, so of course, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Angel had one, and uh. Uh, and actually like brought it back, gave it to me so I could photograph it. Wow. It's the only one that I know the whereabouts of at this point. I don't know where all the, all the rest of them you are. You start tweeting about your old work and see who can find it. If we can find it. Do we get a little note on the uh, underneath the work on the wall? I, I mean, Angel still had hers. Yes, of course. You totally, you totally do. We'll so do anyway, a, a call there's... for Nalen's old work. Yes. yes. If you're yeah, out yeah. there, we are too. <laughs> if you have a Blake lying around, right? And and many folks do. Um, hey, the the curators for Robert Rauschenberg are still looking for his early work. Oh yeah, I mean he's never found it completely. So, no, no, no. I mean know? there's no like you don't think that you're like if have it a comes resume. down to making a catalog resume. I mean we're going through and and people ask about like what's the value of having a gallery. I mean, mm. the incredible thing about working with Matthew is that Matthew is really meticulous about record keeping and is mm. and has the resources to be able to have staff that work on these things. So mm-hmm. we've been working on compiling Your like archive. the whereabouts of as much stuff as possible. And, but I sort of got onto that because I was thinking about like trying to sort of think about things throughout the arc of my career. And I have to say that I think the thing that has guided me in the work the most is asking myself the question, um, like, what's around me? What's in my life that I'm not allowing into the work? And how can I make a place for it in a work? Like, um, for for many years, I was with a... I was, I was with a guy named Philip Horvitz. We were, like, domestic partners. We were together. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like... And yet, as I looked at the work, the work had nothing to say about being in a couple. And so I like asked myself the question about like, okay, why am I, you know, and I, and I think that there are reasons. Um, it is um, sexier to think of an artist as a lone entity who Part is not. fantasy. Who right. dalliances. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> doesn't, or, or that the intellectual relationship isn't triangulated through a third person Mm -hmm. so then i was like okay well i i need to make some work about being in a couple about what is that what is that dynamic i mean at that point it was like x was like the only practically the only band i could think of that was about Mm -hmm. made work about being in a couple yeah right um so so things like that like 
okay, here are like the comic books that I read all the time. Like, why aren't, why isn't that in the work? Like, why, why am I afraid of? Or how is it in the work, but not obviously? Well, there's that, there is that part as well. I mean, that's got to be well. interesting in terms of looking back at work and being able to see things in a way that you could never see at the time you were making. Yeah. I mean, certainly that was the case for me with, say, issues of race, right? Yes. Being a, being a, 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 a black person who passes for white. Yeah. Um, Hold up, really? For many years. Yes. That's cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on who you ask. Yes. <laughs> um, it's it's certainly complicated, but yes. So. Um, and that wasn't really public knowledge until you were later in your twenties, right? Um, the person. I mean, I people who knew me, I would in, sort of, yeah. I would talk about it, but. Um, but it wasn't acknowledged in the art world until Thelma Golden included right. me in the Black Male Show, something right. that I will be forever grateful for. That Absolutely. was a kind of yeah. coming out about race mm-hmm. that what that was not a thing that was visible to people in the art world until um, she made that gesture. Right. And so I think that one of the things that I'm immensely grateful for in terms of making work is that it is the way for there for the way for me to have like multiple coming outs yes. over the course of my life to be able to um to be able to be publicly present as you know a fat person as a as a you know as a you know um you know a a sort of uh multi i don't even know if that's the right word but but someone for whom gender is complex yes um to come you know to to someone who is queer someone who is kinky someone who you know that all of these uh, identities and identifications Mm -hmm. that i that i get to um every time that i have announce that publicly mm-hmm. I have met the people for whom they are a fan of that and so I th- I think that I and and I've said this in other contexts and so I'm it's it's a little bit weird to say it again but I'll say it again if you are not your true self in your work, you will never meet the people who are the fans of that true self. And they are out there and they want to meet you. And in many cases, they need to hear from you. I'm getting a little choked up. Very but, well said. But they, but, but particularly for people in marginalized circumstances, mm-hmm. people who are being beaten down, people who do not feel represented, people who do not feel spoken for, simply announcing your own presence mm-hmm. in the world is the opportunity for you to meet those people and they need to hear from you. Right. And and I see my work as uh, as an extension of my fandom for all of the people who did that for me yeah and 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 that's what making culture actually is is providing instances 
um, that allow other people to be courageous, to, to live their unique lives in this world that is not geared towards recognizing them. Mm -hmm. So every time you hold back from that, mm -hmm. every time you feel like it's too um, blatant or too corny or too goofy or too um, loud or whatever it is, it's not only that you deny that to yourself, but you also deny it to the other people who need to see it in the world. Absolutely. That's a so. perfect ending. So we have a small tradition here that we end the, the podcast on. Mm -hmm. You'll catch on quickly, I'm sure. Hi, I'm Megan Flanders, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm Karen Atkinson, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm Naylan Blake, and I'm an artist. Yay! Usually that's how meetings start. <laughs> Our music is brought to us by Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra. And you can check him out on Spotify, Pandora, and the internet at large. This week's sponsor is the multi-talented folks over at Jelly Arts. You can find them at www.gelliarts.com. You can catch up on any episodes you might have missed at our website, artworldpodcast.com. Please consider donating to our Patreon page for as little as a dollar. You can help us offset the costs of research and production of this podcast and allow us the flexibility to make more episodes. Join a community of other Art World amigos and exclusive bonus content of our guests at www.patreon.com slash artworldpodcast. And finally, if you like what we do, please help us get the word out by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this podcast however you can. And thank you. That's it for this episode, amigos. Until next time, be nice to the interns and go make good art.